Hey everybody, just a quick word before we jump into the podcast. It was raining pretty heavily outside when I recorded this episode, so I apologise for any noise that might be in the background. That's all. Enjoy the show. Film Podcast, a show dedicated to celebrating the ongoing mystery and dream that is cinema and tracing film history through the decades via the films that have meant the most to me. My name is Jonty Cornford and I'm a writer, editor, composer, music producer and a lover of films. This week on the show we're jumping forwards in time to what I think is one of the greatest films of the 21st century so far. Having learnt a little bit about Paul Schrader in an earlier episode, We're going to be revisiting him in greater detail today as we take the plunge into the morally and theologically murky waters of his own feature-length filmmaking. Join me as we explore his 2017 film starring Ethan Hawke and Amanda Seyfried, first performed. I've decided to keep a journal to set down all my thoughts and the simple events of my day. I will keep this diary for one year, and at the end of that time, it will be destroyed. I encouraged my son to enlist. It was a family tradition. Six months later, he was dead in Iraq. I was lost. My sense the reading of the Lord. Praise be God. Are you? Oh, I'm fine. No, really. It's been a while since we've talked. Even a pastor needs a pastor. Did you see the doctor? You need someone to take care of you. I want you to be happy. I know that nothing can change, and I know there is no hope. Reverend Toller? Yes, Mary. You must come over. You must come over now. Explosives. She was becoming someone I didn't know. Opportunistic diseases, anarchy, martial law. You will live to see this. She had no idea that he was thinking of. No. I'm so frightened. These kids, they want certainty. You know, don't think, follow. They fall prey to extremism. It's a world without hope. No, I have not lost my faith. we did together was a sin. I've seen enough real sin to know the difference. You didn't tell the police, right? Take a look at your own life before you criticize others. These are frightening times. We have to be patient. Well, somebody has to do something. Are you shake as I write these lines. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Can God forgive us for what we've done to this world? Who can know the mind of God? Before we start, a warning. As always, I do encourage you to check the age certificate for the films that we talk about each week in your territory. 
But for this film, I do want to also stress that the Australian classification of M with consumer advice of mature themes doesn't do a brilliant job of warning viewers of the disturbing material in this film. First Reformed confronts a number of very tough issues head-on without any sugarcoating, including the climate catastrophe, terrorism, abortion, and fairly graphic depictions of self-harm and suicide. If you haven't seen the film, and these are things that you know will upset you, I do urge you to proceed with caution. We will not be balking at any of the subject matter in this episode, or any other. This also means that we will obviously also be spoiling the entirety of the film, so if you haven't seen it, and you want to see it unspoilt, pause this podcast and come back when you've seen it. But I mean, really, if you're listening to an hour-long breakdown of a film that you haven't seen, and you're worried about spoilers, I can't do much to help you. So first, a recap. Ethan Hawke is Reverend Toller, pastor at First Reformed Church in Snowbridge, New York, and is struggling with a crisis of faith. He starts keeping a journal, a practice he plans to commit to for a year, after which the journal will be burned. It's an act of prayer. First Reformed is dwindling, acting more as a tourist attraction than a functioning church. Reverend Toller is struggling with the loss of his son and the subsequent breakdown of his marriage, something that has led to alcoholism and growing mental health issues. In his placement at First Reformed, he's mentored by a pastor at the nearby megachurch Abundant Life named Reverend Jeffers, played by Cedric the Entertainer. One Sunday, after the service, Toller is approached by the pregnant Mary, played by Amanda Seyfried, a congregation member who wants him to meet with her husband, Michael, who's a climate activist. He visits and he talks with Michael. Michael outlines the state of the world and the extent to which the Earth is on an irreversible path to climate catastrophe, and he asks Reverend Toller the question that he brought him to his house to ask. How can you sanction bringing a new life into this world? Reverend Toller assures Michael that no matter how painful the idea of bringing a child into this world may seem, it cannot come close to the pain of taking one away. Mary informs Reverend Toller of a suicide vest that she found in the garage of their home. Toller takes the vest from her, promising to counsel Michael about it. They discuss taking the vest to the police, but Toller says that it would only worsen Michael's mental state. Before their next meeting, Michael texts Toller to meet him in the local park. Upon arrival, Toller finds Michael's dead body, killed by a self-inflicted shotgun blast to the head. In accordance with Michael's will, the funeral takes place at a toxic waste site where his ashes are scattered. Meanwhile, plans are underway for the celebration of the 250th anniversary of First Reformed, with a service attended by the Mayor, the Governor and Edward Bork, one of Abundant Life's key financial backers and the owner of a polluting factory. At a meeting in a diner, Bork takes issue with Toller honouring Michael's will, deeming it to be a political act, and they argue over climate change. Bork dismisses it as being complicated, but Toller sees it as a straightforward matter of Christian stewardship. Experiencing physical pain, Toller reluctantly sees a doctor who suspects stomach cancer and schedules some tests. Toller has Michael's laptop computer, which he took after Michael's suicide to prevent the police from discovering his radicalism and making trouble for Mary. He uses it to research Michael's concerns, including the materials in Bork's factory which inspired him to make the explosive vest. 
One night, Mary visits Toller in the parsonage of the church, and she asks him to play Michael's role in a non-sexual rite of physical intimacy the couple used to perform together. Toller begs Mary not to attend the anniversary service. Preparing for his role in the ceremony, he puts on the explosive vest and arms it. When he sees her entering the church, he removes the vest and instead wraps himself in barbed wire under his clergy vests. He pours a glass full of drain cleaner and is about to drink it when Mary interrupts him. They embrace, kissing passionately, before the film abruptly cuts to black. This is a very intense film, and the first time that I saw it when it came out, I was totally unprepared for the effect that it would have on me. As a person of faith, I was startled by how seriously the film took its subject matter of faith, but also how earnestly it applied that faith-based thematic content to a real-world construct. It spoke to my frustrations and desperations about the climate catastrophe in a way that interfaced directly with my faith. It dealt with subjects of serious mental illness, with such straight-faced sobriety and transparency in a way that I had never really encountered in a, quote, Christian film, whatever the hell that is. The drama of the film was utterly compelling, and the final sequence at the 250th anniversary cranked tension to the point where I found it almost unbearable to watch at different points. But most importantly, I couldn't stop thinking about it after I saw it. I couldn't stop talking to other people about it. I couldn't stop reading about it. I've seen First Reform seven or eight times now, and the fact that I still find things to chew on and wrestle with after so many rounds is testament to just how rich and thematically resonant the film is. It never gets old for me, and I do truly think that it's one of the great masterpieces so far of the 21st century. To explain why I think this is the case, we need to reacquaint ourselves with its writer and director, a man by the name of Paul Schrader. We've crossed paths with Schrader before on this podcast, in our episode on Andrei Tarkovsky's Stalker, so feel free to go back and check out that episode if you haven't already, to fill in some further context. But to really understand First Reformed, there's a lot that we need to unpack about the person of Paul Schrader, not just the filmmaker. Paul Schrader was brought up in an extraordinarily strict Dutch Calvinist household in Grand Rapids, Michigan. His brother, Leonard, described their childhood as a permanent form of mild depression. Schrader's father would beat him on a daily basis for any infraction on religious observance, and his mother would stick him with needles to give them a taste of the punishment that awaited them in hell. Schrader's father's family also had a long history of depression and suicidal ideation. His father's only brother killed himself when his children were very young, and two of his sons eventually committed suicide as well. Paul would often tell people that, like his uncle and cousins, he felt like he was fated to also die by his own hand. Movies were strictly forbidden in the Schrader home, and in Easy Rider's Raging Bulls by Peter Biskind, Leonard describes the terrifying experience of seeing a film in a cinema for the first time and having hallucinations of God bursting through the screen to condemn him to hell. Paul planned to be a Calvinist minister until he saw his first film at the age of 17, at which point he became totally smitten with the art form, gave up on his ambitions to be a Calvinist minister, and enrolled at UCLA to study film. Film critic for The New Yorker, Pauline Kael, had recommended him to UCLA and encouraged Schrader to become a film critic. 
Schrader became a film critic for the Los Angeles Free Press. At this point in his life, he's still coming to terms with his religious upbringing and navigating the ways in which it would interface with his newfound life in film. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you, you read Paul's book. Uh, he wrote one of the seminal books about film history called Transcendental Style and Film. Yeah. And now, uh, and when we first met 20 years ago, I asked you about that influence on Taxi Driver. And here you are now making First Reformed, which is clearly influenced by Ozu Bresson, Carl yeah. Theodore Dreyer. In, in March of 1969, I was a film critic for the LA Free Press. I went over to the Lemley Theater, saw a screening of Pickpocket, and I reviewed it. And in that 75 minutes, it's a short film, two things happened that changed my life. One was I realized that there was a bridge between my spiritual life and my film life, and it was a bridge of style, not a bridge of content. And the other thing oh. I realized is that, in fact, there was a place for me in the film business other than a critic. And two years later, I had written the book, and three years later, I had written Taxi Driver, which is a pickpocket. And then 50 years later, those two seeds, which fell in that Petri dish, came and wound up, and I made First Reformed. Paul Schrader is perhaps most well-known for his collaborations with director Martin Scorsese, with whom he made Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, The Last Temptation of Christ, and Bringing Out the Dead. Scorsese the Catholic and Schrader the Calvinist make for interesting and compelling bedfellows, especially when their work takes on the explicitly theological. Taxi Driver is most likely the film that those familiar with Schrader's work would picture at mention of his name. His first screenplay for Yakuza was produced in 1974, a project that he co-wrote with his brother Leonard and Robert Town, the screenwriter whose journey we followed closely in our Chinatown episode. Throughout the 1970s and 80s, he began to make a name for himself as a screenwriter, also working on such films as Blue Collar, Hardcore, American Gigolo and Cat People. Raging Bull and Taxi Driver were particularly notable successes for Schrader, both films receiving wide critical acclaim and various awards nominations. Schrader's contribution to film history and criticism is perhaps just as significant as his contributions to film in the form of screenwriting and directing. The last time we met Paul Schrader on our Stalker episode was to hear about his book, Transcendental Style in Film. You may remember this clip, where Schrader talks about what he calls transcendental style, or more simply, slow cinema. If you come to expect action, well, you're not going to get it. Transcendental style is essentially a withholding device. You're going to hold on shots too long. You're not going to cut. You're creating dead time. And what happens during dead time? When you are instructed to watch nothing. Now, in real life, you don't watch dead time. De Sica and Umberto D, the famous shot of the maid striking the match three times. It was no longer about the activity of striking a match. It was about how long you're going to sit and watch. The filmmaker is using the power of cinema itself against itself to get you into a sense that you have to participate. Most movies lean towards you. They lean towards you aggressively with their hands around your throat, trying to grab every section of your attention. These type of films lean away from you, and they use time, and, and as other people would call it, boredom, as a technique. Eventually, 
if you're smart enough on how you use these techniques, now you're doing something really rare. You're activating the viewer. Uh, and once the viewer starts to move on his own, it's so much more powerful. When you use boredom as an aesthetic device, when is it effective and when is it simply boredom? If you consistently withhold and now the viewer is leaning towards you, now you have to, I think, in a certain moment, free them. You know, do something unexpected. In Ida, it's the tracking shot at the end, you know. In uh, Bresson, it's just a burst of music, you know. You know, you, you show a movie for an hour and a half, two hours, with no music at all. Quelque chose illumina sa figure. Then all of a sudden at the end, boom, a big blast of Mozart. What are you going to do with something that aggressive? And the trick of someone who can use transcendental style is to suddenly freeze them. So like the characters in Ozu's films never show any emotion, and all of a sudden at the end, whammo, comes a big blast of emotion. What are you going to do with it now that he has totally conditioned you not to expect it? Is it going to put you off, or is it going to knock you up a notch? And that's the idea of the decisive action. And once you get that action, and then, then after that, silence. key moment for me in Schrader's career in the lead-up to First Reformed is his involvement with the Exorcist franchise. He was initially hired in 2001 to direct a prequel film to the original The Exorcist, and he shot for six weeks in Morocco before spending a further two months shooting in Rome. By the time filming had wrapped in February of 2003, six writers had contributed to the screenplay and the budget had nearly doubled. An early cut of Schrader's film that ran at 130 minutes was shown to the studio in early 2003. The cut was widely derided due to a lack of scares or gore. The studio at first opted to re-edit the film to make it scarier, which Schrader opposed. Additional photography was then planned, which, according to Schrader, only grew bigger and bigger as time went on. Schrader attested that he had faithfully adapted the screenplay to the screen and that the studio went through buyer's remorse during production. Later reports indicated that Schrader was first given the option to re-edit the film twice, with neither cut managing to satisfy the studio. Sheldon Kahn was brought in to recut the film without Schrader's involvement, and Schrader was livid and reportedly demanded that Kahn leave. By then, the studio met with other filmmakers to direct new scenes to make the film scarier. Kahn was expected for rewrites, but instead the studio opted to fire Schrader and scrap the film entirely in August of 2003. Morgan Creek then sought for a new director, starting in October of 2003. The final film that came out in 2004, titled Exorcist The Beginning, was directed by Rennie Harlan and was almost entirely reshot from what Schrader had initially compiled. It was released to disastrously bad reviews and even worse box office returns, and eventually Schrader's version premiered at the Brussels Film Festival in 2005 as Exorcist, the original prequel, before getting a wider theatrical release under the title of Dominion. 
Critics generally liked Schrader's version substantially more, but it was still met overall with negative reception. Supposedly, both Paul Schrader and the Exorcist author William Peter Blatty were nearly kicked out of the world premiere of Exorcist The Beginning for laughing loudly at the film throughout. Another pivotal moment for Schrader is his involvement with Martin Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ, a film that Schrader wrote based on the novel by Nikos Kazantzakis, not, as many to this day still assumed, based on any of the four Gospels. The narrative of the film deviates from the canonical narrative of the Gospels in an attempt to underline the humanity of Christ, but religious groups certainly didn't see it in the way that it was intended. While some religious groups praised the film, others, most certainly, did not. On October 22nd of 1988, an integralist Catholic group set fire to the St. Michael Cinema in Paris while it was showing the film. Shortly after midnight, an incendiary device ignited under a seat in the less supervised underground room where a different film was being shown. The attack injured 13 people, four of whom were severely burned and severely damaged the cinema. Scorsese himself felt the need to be flanked by bodyguards during public appearances, such was the intensity of the death threats that he received in the wake of the film's release. Because of the film's departures from the gospel narratives, and especially a brief scene where Jesus and Mary Magdalene consummate their marriage, several Christian groups organised vocal protests and boycotts of the film prior to and upon its release. One protest, organised by a religious Californian radio station, gathered 600 protesters to picket the headquarters of Universal Studios' then-parent company, MCA. One of the protesters, dressed up as MCA's chairman, Lou Weiserman, and pretended to drive nails through Jesus' hands into a wooden cross. Evangelist Bill Bright offered to buy the film's negative from Universal in order to destroy it. The protests were effective in convincing several theatre chains not to screen the film, one of those chains, General Cinemas, later apologised to Scorsese and Schrader for doing so. The film continues to this day to be censored and banned in many different countries and territories around the world. So while not only did Schrader have religious trauma at home, he was well acquainted with religious trauma and controversy associated with his filmmaking career. Courage is the solution to despair. Reason provides no answers. I can't know what, what the future will bring. We have to choose despite uncertainty. Wisdom is holding two contradictory truths in our mind simultaneously. Hope and despair. A life without despair is a life without hope. Holding these two ideas in our head is life itself. Are you drinking, man, Reverend? Yeah, it doesn't help. No, I suppose not. Can God forgive us? For what we've uh, done to this world? Who can know the mind of God? Or we can choose. 
righteous life. Belief. Forgiveness. Grace. Covers us all. I believe that. Schrader has spoken in the past about how First Reformed is almost like the combination of the two germs present in Taxi Driver and Transcendental Style in film. While this is certainly not the first and only time Schrader has combined these two, First Reformed is possibly the most explicit marriage of Schrader's content and form. The slow, methodical and metronomic style of filmmaking married to content of the explicitly theological. The formal qualities of Transcendental Style are all over First Reformed. The camera is largely stationary, only moving either when it's entirely necessary for blocking or in moments of great revelation, like the final swirling shot of Tola in Embrace with Mary. It's common in First Reformed for the camera to linger on a conversation in a single wide shot, not even cutting when people leave the room, instead insisting that the audience wait for the character to re-enter the room. Conversations are not edited together to act as a paraphrasing of boring everyday conversation. They play out in real time, an evocation of the mundanity of real life. As we have spoken about before on this podcast, the intent of this style of filmmaking is not boredom for the sake of boredom. It's to engage the viewer, to make the viewer lean into the film, amplifying the smallest facial twitch or glance to being as world-shattering as Thor's entrance in Infinity War. The aspect ratio of 133 to 1 that the film presents in amplifies this minimal, boxed-in feeling that the film carries, emphasising the claustrophobia of the reality of this film. Schrader has said that the choice to shoot in this aspect ratio was inspired by seeing Pavel Pawlikowski's 2013 film Ida, saying it drives the vertical line so you get more of the human body in the frame. The rhythm and cadence of filmmaking and the act of watching films is something that's largely been lost to a lot of filmgoers, particularly younger filmgoers, and so for a film like this to resonate fully, it requires the viewer to see it on the film's own terms, not their own. It requires a slowing down of your external experience, a slowing down of your own external rhythms and pacing to match that of the film. The style and form of First Reformed also allows it to take part in revelation as described in transcendental style in film. When the vast majority of the film is presented in the minimalist, slow style that it commits to, it means that when it breaks from that style, it's incredibly impactful. Take this film's use of music. The score is largely ambient and prowling in the background, composed wonderfully by industrial artist Lustmord, often entirely absent from whole scenes but always bleeding through the film with its infectious dread and sickness. When the film reaches its climax, all of a sudden, we're hit by a diegetic rendition of Leaning on the Everlasting Arms, made more powerful by the fact that it's played on the organ that's been such a point of conflict for Toller through the film. This is also one of very few points in the film that the camera becomes mobile, swirling around the embrace between Reverend Toller and Mary. By withholding the sort of cinematic flourishes that we come to expect from big American films for the majority of the runtime, when they're finally given to us, they mean something. In the case of Paul Schrader and First Reformed, it's transcendence. The two points in the movie at which the camera is activated with the audience are both scenes of intimacy between Tola and Mary. The embrace that they share at the film's final moments, and also the scene at Toller's home, perhaps the most explicit and literal depiction of transcendence across Schrader's filmography. 
The two lie face to face, nose to nose, toe to toe, and transcend together in their shared grief. Their grief for loved ones lost, and their grief for the world that they live in, something that they are coming to terms with as being something that may not be as permanent as they once thought. To me, it's these two scenes, so clearly underlined by such remarkable camera work and filmmaking, that nail home one of the biggest messages that I take away from this film. Tollett doesn't find salvation until he accepts the presence of the people around him. He finds connection. I'm sure it's no coincidence then that he also finds it in the character named Mary, who also happens to be pregnant. Up until this point, he has pushed everybody in his life away. His marriage ended after the death of his son, something that his ex-wife blames him for because of his involvement with the army. He pushes away the attempts of Reverend Jeffers to counsel and care for him. He pushes away the romantic and pastoral attempts from Esther, with whom he's clearly been in some sort of relationship with in the past. It isn't until he starts to connect with the pregnant Mary that he finds his salvation. Did you see the doctor? Yes, I made an appointment. There was a bit of a hang-up with the insurance company, but God, they make it so difficult. Yeah, well, that's what they do. Mm-hmm. You need someone to take care of you. Esther, we tried that. I'm not made for that. <laughs> for what? Love? You're not made for love? My marriage was a failure. No marriage can survive the loss of a child. It's not right. Is that what you think? That what we did together was a sin that we transgressed? No, that's not what I think. I've seen enough real sin to know the difference. It's just... Okay. Okay. I understand. I I care about you. I want you to be happy. Well, I am happy. Let's break down the ending of the film, because no doubt it's the part of the film that stays with audiences the longest. It certainly is for me. On the one hand, we can see this as literally as it is portrayed to us on the screen. Toller is saved at the last minute, dropping the glass of drain cleaner and embracing Mary. The film, in fact, makes a point of telling us that there is a second key to the back room as a part of the display out in the church, so it's totally plausible that Mary could have indeed gone to find Toller, grabbed the key, and walked into that room at precisely the right time to stop Toller from committing suicide. On the other hand, as we talked about before, the film uses its formal qualities to tell us that what we are seeing in these final moments is not a truthful representation of the actual events, that they could be a distorted view of events through the lens of Reverend Toller's fractured psyche. Are we in fact seeing Reverend Toller's dying moments, a sort of death dream, as he slips off the edge of this mortal coil? 
part of what makes Paul Schrader such a compelling writer to follow and what makes First Reform so powerful is that Schrader trusts his audience to be able to interpret the text for themselves, not feeling compelled to embed any one particular message into the text. In fact, I believe that Schrader actively withholds such explanations for any of his character's actions or underlining of morality, challenging the audience to make their own decisions about this layer of subtext. Again, this is Schrader activating the audience. It's in this spirit that the film actually leaves evidence within the text that supports both interpretations of the ending. The famous and now cliched Chekhov's gun screenwriting trope is that if you see a gun in the first reel of the film, it has to go off at some point, and by the same token, you can't have a gun go off without first planting the gun earlier in the film. The key in the display cabinet is a Chekhov's gun for the reading of the literal ending, whereas the appearance of the drain cleaner at various points in the film is the Chekhov's gun for the bleaker ending. An ending with such deeply baked in and intentional ambiguity only works if the audience is fully activated. And as we now know, Paul Schrader is fully switched on to the process of activating his audience. While my opinion about the ending of the film changes back and forth, at this current moment, I choose to read it as a tragedy in the traditional sense of the word, and we do in fact see Reverend Toller become a martyr for the distorted view of faith that he has come to believe in as the world turns to shit around him. Here's Paul Schrader himself on the ending. You know, I had an interesting situation with First Reformed. I wasn't quite sure how to end it. You know, there was the possibility of the Zabriskie Point ending with body parts, endless explosions and slow motion. And then I, I had put in the um, Diary of a Country Priest ending where mm. the priest falls out of frame. And uh, Kent Jones, an old friend of mine who runs the New York Film Festival, I gave him the script. And he said to me, oh, you went for the Country Priest ending. I thought you were headed for the Ordet ending. And as soon as he said it, I said, boom, say no more, say no more. I know, I know exactly. And I changed the ending into the Ardette ending. But uh, if you can find somebody who can just say that one thing, mm -hmm. that, that's, a, that, that's a lucky moment. Sometime after Taxi Driver, people started thinking that the ending of Taxi Driver was a fantasy. Now, that's not what Scorsese and I had planned. But I said, I, I don't have a problem with that. I, I, think, it, I think it's a valid enough interpretation. So I, I came to this one, I said, well, let's, let's bake the ambiguity in. And so very calculatedly, you know, you have an ending that can be read in one of two ways. One is she suddenly appears and rescues him from his morbidity. The other is it's an ecstatic vision and that he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he drinks the cup, he falls to the floor on all fours, and starts disgorging his stomach, and God, who has not spoken to him throughout the film, walks in the room and walks over to him, and God says, Reverend Toller, would you like to see what heaven looks like? I'm going to show you right now. It looks like one long kiss. And that's the last thing he sees. I, I like that ending too. <laughs> you don't have to look particularly closely at First Reform to see the similarities it shares with Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver. Schrader's script for Taxi Driver similarly focuses on the lonely male figure, dislocated from community and society, their otherness and loneliness driving them towards terrible acts of violence. 
comparing these two films, however, and in particular comparing the two lead characters and the two different endings, shows us in large part the way that Schrader has evolved over the years, while also, in some respects, stayed the same. So let's compare the two. Both characters seem to have been born from the central character of Bresson's Diary of a Country Priest, a film that Schrader openly talks about as being hugely influential on him. This may also have been the starting point for Schrader's implementation of the journal as a dramatic device in both Taxi Driver and First Reformed. Both Taxi Driver's Travis Bickle and First Reformed's Reverend Toller are men with military backgrounds, both struggling with mental illness, largely as a result of their time in the military. Travis Bickle is a Vietnam War veteran, and Reverend Toller spent a number of years in the army as a chaplain. The death of his child occurred in large part due to his insistence that he also join the army, something that his ex-wife was strongly opposed to. Both characters are engaged and challenged by their encounters with younger female characters. For Reverend Toller, it's the pregnant Mary, and for Travis Bickle, it's the warped, perverted tilt on that trope in the guise of Jodie Foster's Iris, a child prostitute. For both men, a combination of their immediate environments and their internal geography pushes them to the place at which the only possible solution that they can see is violence. While First Reformed is more explicit in this, both films are able to be read as presenting a sort of death dream as an ending. Violence builds up in the psyches of the lone man until they are driven to unleash that violence on other people. Where First Reformed advances this thematic material from how it's depicted in Taxi Driver is that whereas it is possible to read the ending of Taxi Driver as Travis Bickle being baptised by the blood and the carnage, made new and whole by his enacting of vengeance, Reverend Toller in First Reformed does not find his salvation in violence. Instead, he only finds and accepts his salvation by opening himself up to the people around him who care deeply about him. The tragedy of the film, of course, is that depending on how you read it, that salvation could well have arrived far too late. Peter just alluded to the elephant in the room, which is political correctness. Mm. You know, I mean, uh, our job is... There's uh, a few elephants, to be fair. Yeah. No, no, truly, there, there are, and yeah. that's not the only and, one. And our jobs There's are not representational made elephant in the room right now, too. People who say, you know, you you can't do that, you shouldn't do that, and uh, and trigger alerts and all of that, and uh, it's not um, it's not very but good for the creative process here, and and there is damage to real people. And my understanding is that when you first conceived a taxi driver, you wanted this to be with an African American character and show that point of view. Well, the danger is that you are sending a racist message. No, I was making a racist... It's a racist script. He only killed black people. Because when you're kind of low on the totem pole, you're looking for people who are lower. And, and that, that's why these kind of kids are racist. And then Melnick over at uh, Columbia... Dan Melnick, who's yeah, the head of Columbia. He, uh, he just said, uh, uh, there will be riots. There will be violence in the theater if we do this. And we knew he was right. And so we took the, the main Pym character and uh, made him white, made him right. Harvey Keitel. And that was a case where in a novel that would not have been irresponsible, but in a mm. crowded theater, it was irresponsible. Mm. And mm. so it's, you know, there's no hard and fast rules. As is often the case with films of this tone and pacing, the success or failure of the film can hinge largely on the performances. I've always had a love for Ethan Hawke after first seeing him in Dead Poet Society in a role that hit a little too close to home. 
While Ethan Hawke has gone on to broaden his acting range in a number of excellent roles over the years, it's that childlike fear that I observed in Dead Poet Society that imbues his performance in First Reformed with so much tragedy and gravity. He's self-conscious and awkward when talking to other people. At the beginning of the film, he seems to be content with the life that's been handed to him, no matter how demoralising that life is. When he does stand up to people in the film, it seems like he does so at the risk of bursting into tears at any moment. But it's once he realises the hypocrisy and the corruption at the heart of abundant life next door, and the terrifying reality of the world that's been allowed to curdle on the watch of men like him, that he's activated. There's a tragic confidence that washes over Toller once he accepts his warped view of reality, and once he accepts what he feels like he must do in response. Amanda Seyfried is just as important as Mary, and her performance is one that continually grounds Ethan Hawke in the humanity and empathy that he starts to lose sight of as his crisis of faith deepens. When Schrader first approached Amanda Seyfried for the role, he was surprised to find out that she was pregnant, something that he then took and wrote into the script. Not only did this addition ripple into Ethan Hawke's grief over his lost son, but it adds a further layer of religious subtext to the film. And there's obviously a lot of religious and biblical subtext to be found in this film. But I have in fact already covered a lot of that on my other podcast, Filthy Hope. If you're interested in hearing myself and another ordained minister break down some of the religious, environmental and ethical elements of the film, please do go and check out episode 9 of Filthy Hope, wherever you get your podcasts. First Reformed was picked up by A24 for distribution in September of 2017, after premiering at the Venice Film Festival in August of that year. The film grossed a little over $100,000 on its opening weekend in four theatres, one of the better opening weekends in Schrader's career. On its $3.5 million budget, it went on to make a little over $4 million worldwide. David Sims at The Atlantic called it a tale of existential woe, an embittered look at our world through the eyes of someone who's increasingly horrified to be a part of it, and a film that's one of the most searing cinema experiences of the year. Peter Bradshaw at The Guardian said the sheer Bunyan-esque severity of the film is as refreshing as a glass of ice-cold water, a passionately focused film, but not a masterpiece, and noted that Ethan Hawke's character's name was an allusion to the German playwright Ernst Toller. Michael Phillips of the Chicago Tribune stated that for such a deliberate exercise in a specific methodical style, First Reformed is oddly bracing, full of unresolved, contradictory, vital ideas. First Reformed. Last week, Ethan Hawke came on the show. How much Paul Schrader, how much more Paul Schrader could First Reformed be? He is an ex-military chaplain whose son died in service after he encouraged him to sign up. He now works in this old church, which is about to have its 250th anniversary Reconsecration. He keeps a diary in which he writes unforgivingly about himself, and it becomes apparent that he's writing because he can't pray. He says, I wish I could pray, but the diary is where he pours everything out. But he also says the journal gives him no peace. We see him sitting in a dark room writing with a bottle of whiskey, which takes us back to what, how Paul Schrader said that he used to write. He is God's lonely man, which takes us back to Schrader's script for Taxi Driver, which is really the, you know, the thing that kick-started his career. And we see somebody suffering a crisis of faith, which very much recalls Karras in The Exorcist, and that is not a crowbar because Schrader directed Dominion prequel to The Exorcist, and Schrader and Bill Blatty actually got on very well despite, you know, 
different parts of the uh, of the church they you know they had certain shared concerns Amanda Seyfried um, is pregnant and comes to him saying that her husband is um, obsessed with the eco decline of the world and is terrified about bringing somebody into this world who says in 2050 his son will be 33 and the world will be on the brink of destruction 33 of course being a significant age if you're talking about you know Christianity the way the film is shot it's 137 boxy frame it looks very very much like and I was thinking of Dryer and I was also thinking of Eda we mentioned Eda when you were talking about it with Ethan Hawke you said to Ethan Hawke it's a color film but it it looked like a black and white film to you and it was no surprise to discover that Schrader had made it after a conversation with Pavel Pavlikovsky. Um, there are weird moments of almost hypnotic transcendence but at the centre of it is that tortured God's Lonely Man character perfectly embodied by Ethan Hawke. I found it very powerful. I found it, it had none of the cod ridiculous theology that, uh, that was the wrong with uh, Dominion prequel to The Exorcist. I thought it had none of the nonsensical, sensational claptrap of um, The Canyons, which I absolutely hated. It, I, hard to believe that it was made by the same person that made the dismal dog-eat-dog. After I had reviewed um, The Canyons very poorly, it's a terrible film, a terrible film without redeeming features, Paul Schrader wrote on the internet, what happened? My last knowledge of Mark Kermode was that he was a serious film critic. Now he seems to have transformed himself into a radio shock commentator, not the sort of person to pass serious judgment on others. I'm not allowed to pass judgment on others, but I would say this, this is the best film Schrader has made since Autofocus. It is a very fine piece of work and I admired it hugely. Movie of the week. 2017 was one of the better years for film in recent memory. So I have lots of recommendations for other great movies. Of the bigger movies to come out that year, films like Blade Runner 2049, Logan and The Shape of Water stand out to me, and even War for the Planet of the Apes is far better than it has any right to be. But for me, it's the catalogue of smaller films that came out in 2017 that have really left their mark on me. Lynn Ramsey's haunting revenge thriller, You Were Never Really Here. Yorgos Lanthimos's black comedy, The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Sean Baker's The Florida Project. David Lowry's A Ghost Story. The Safdie Brothers' Good Time, S. Craig Zahler's Brawl in Cell Block 99. I can't recommend any of these films highly enough, and they're all a testament to the fact that 2017 was a kick-ass year for cinema. But I think my favourite film to come out in 2017 is a small horror film called The Black Coat's Daughter, known sometimes as February, depending on the territory, directed by real-life Norman Bates's son, Oz Perkins. At the Academy Awards, Guillermo del Toro wins Best Picture for The Shape of Water, as well as Best Director. Notably, Jordan Peele wins Best Original Screenplay for Get Out, a huge moment in the history of horror and black cinema. Best Adapted Screenplay goes to James Ivory for his adaptation of Call Me By Your Name. Best Actor goes to Gary Oldman for Darkest Hour, and Best Actress goes for Frances McDormand for her fearless performance in Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. The five most profitable movies across the world in 2017 are Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, Despicable Me 3, The Fate of the Furious, Beauty and the Beast, and Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi.
As always, please make sure to give this podcast a friendly review wherever you're catching it and share it with a friend. We've actually started charting in a number of different places around the world, but most excitingly to me, here in my home country of Australia. Five-star written reviews on Apple Podcasts really mean much more than you realise, so if you're able to do that and contribute to this podcast reaching more people, that would genuinely be amazing. If you want to get in touch and be a part of the show, you can either find us on socials or email us at bluerose.filmreview at gmail.com. If you don't already follow the show on Instagram, that's a great place to connect with me and other lovers of films. My first short story collection, Where Lies the Strangling Fruit, is available to buy on paperback or Kindle on Amazon. I'll have the link for that down below. Thanks to producer Ritterman for our theme music, and thanks to Acast for hosting this show. That's all for now, and I'll see you next week for another episode of the Blue Rose Film Podcast. <laughs>